Welcome to the PEBC Podcast. My name is Michelle Jones, and I am the host of our series on phenomenal teaching. This series is a collection of conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers whose work connects with the PEBC teaching framework. In each episode, we will explore how the strands of planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment all cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding across the curriculum and grade levels. Thank you so much for listening in. Patrick is a classroom teacher, PEBC Lab host, well-known speaker and blogger, the author of Conferring, the Keystone of Readers Workshop, and a contributing author to Put Thinking to the Test. He has also produced two video series entitled Backfinders and What Are You Thinking through Stenhouse. Patrick Allen's work with students and adults has influenced the PEBC teaching framework, and today, Patrick is joining us to talk about books and fostering a love of reading and literature in a virtual learning environment. Patrick, welcome back to the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. Thank you. It's so good to be back. Um, this is really going to be a fun thing to think about today. I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about this since you asked me to do it, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. You know, books are one of my very favorite things. Um, my wife and I are uh, both collectors of books and sorters of books and shifters of books and sharers of books. And so um, this has been this has been uh, an interesting week, you know, um, just coming off of Thanksgiving and and spending time actually going through the, the things that we have here at home. So hopefully we can talk a little bit about that today. I love that. And I know that you are, um, you are a lover of books. And in the past, I've been able to visit your kind of brick and mortar classroom, if you will, your regular classroom. And I'm not sure if this is fact or legend or urban myth, but I feel like your personal collection in your classroom has over 3000 titles. Is that correct? It is. It probably is actually higher than that. If you count all the books that I have at home that don't make it into the classroom, that um, that I tend to share with with um, both my wife and my daughter, who are also teachers. So um, yeah, about three thousand books. Probably a little bit less because um, this year when I moved down to uh, second grade, I gave four huge moving boxes of novels to a, a really good friend of mine so that he could have uh, an enormous classroom library as well. So it's it's all about collecting and sharing and finding and growing and weeding and yeah, probably about 3,000. Um, uh, my kids laugh at me because um, we, we joke about what's going to happen, you know, that, uh, that, um, that day when it, they're theirs, what are they going to do with them? Um, I read this great quote by PJ O'Rourke and it said, always read something uh, that will make you look good. If you um, die in the middle of it. <laughs> I love that. So you got to have something good on your bedside. <laughs> exactly. Table, <right>? Exactly. <laughs> oh, and, that is um, funny. Yeah. So this year you're a virtual teacher. You have really had, you know, a year of shifts. You were mm. teaching fourth and fifth grade for a number of years. You've shifted to second grade. And then you made the shift from being a classroom teacher to a virtual teacher, which Correct. in your district means that you've been teaching virtually for the entire year. So a couple questions for you. First and sure. foremost, personally, 
you know, most of your collection is in storage. A lot of your books are home, but many of them are stored away until you return to the classroom. So how are you doing? How are you really satisfying uh, that need for children's literature and having your hands on books? How's that going for you? Well, luckily I have enough at home that I can pull um, things that I want to work with when I'm when I'm reading to children or or teaching uh, a lesson on uh, uh, something uh, uh, in terms of a thinking strategy or or whatever, so I have I have a lot to pull from. Um, a lot of my favorites are at home, but I keep finding myself saying, "Well, now where is that book?" And I just know that it's 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 uh, it's in storage. Um, you know, I, I think the the thing is, I, I think that we we should all compile that list of like, what are the ten books that you would take with you if you were moving somewhere to uh, to teach from and with and to read and to to use again and again, and and I just think that that's something that that's um, you know, I don't like not having books in kids' hands, but that's the way it is because I made this decision to to be an e-learning teacher this year. So that's right, which I think, you know, it, it, it is interesting. And, and you made that conscious choice. So you've had a chance to be intentional and to really mm. kind of dive into that work. A lot of teachers have kind of, I think, have experienced this kind of boomerang this year. Correct. Of being in their classroom, not being in their classroom, being hybrid, being virtual, being in person, socially distanced, quarantined. Mm-hmm. But there's, you know, I think everyone in the in the educational community is really feeling kind of this, like we're not settled, right? We're not in our space. We don't have our things like we normally would have them. But of course, we want to nest, nest up, like definitely focus on kids. Mm-hmm. And so within your e-learning situation, within your virtual classroom, how are you still fostering that love of literature for kiddos? And how are kids accessing texts? What does that look like and sound like? How are you? Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, normally we have that ability to to um, nudge a, a student into a book or to take them over to a book basket or to hand them, you know, something. I've done several things. I've... Um, I've borrowed a um, virtual book room um, padlet that um, that my friend Claire has made. You can you can find it online. It, it's great. Um, you know, kids are. Um, uh, I've sent book lists home to parents. I've uh, I had a, a wonderful mom who just wrote to me um, over the break actually that, and she asked me, you know what would you recommend that I, that I give Shiva to read? Um, and number one, how do I find them? And number two, how do I choose something to read to him that will do what you've been doing? Because ultimately I want him to write beautifully. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's just about, it's just about trying to get to know kids. I, I, um, I'm really careful. I think about what I choose. I don't have that opportunity to, you know, just go to my bookshelf. So when I sit down in the morning to um, to work with kids, I I often have the the books that I've planned to use for that day. So, for example, um, I just uh, we just started a, a study of asking questions, and I I am using a book called Miss Maggie by Cynthia Ryland, and it's an it's an older book, but it, it just listen to the beginning. 
Maggie Ziegler lived in a rotting log house on the edge of Crawford's pasture. There was always a nosy old cow peering in one of her windows, and some folks say a black snake hung from the rafters inside and that it ate all the mice that hid in the cupboards. While a Guernsey peered in a window on one side of the house, Nate Crawford sometimes had his nose mashed up against a window on the opposite side. He was always looking for that snake. When, what he finally found is a story worth telling. Mm. And, I, and I just, I think that that, um, that beginning is, is what we have to think about in terms of, you know, how are we getting kit, books into kids' hands in this virtual world? We just have to keep sharing with them what we know to be quality. It's so easy to um, find things that are not rich, that are not well-written. Um, well, I don't want to say they're not well-written, although I just did, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that just aren't up to, to snuff. So because our choices are more limited, we really have to think carefully about um, what we're choosing in terms of both fiction and nonfiction and poetry and, you know, where, where, what is it that we're going to in order to, to bring literature to kids? Um, you know, I think that, you know, Kate D. Camillo said, I always want to tell kids the truth, but I want to give them hope. And I think that that's a, that that quote is just kind of stuck in my brain because we we need to continue to to help kids understand that this isn't um, permanent. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I think one way to do that is by dipping into our our well of of text and and finding just the very best things that that we can share um, with kids. Um, so for you, it, it sounds like intentionality is critical. Mm -hmm. So especially in this e-learning or virtual learning context that you're in, mm -hmm. you, you do have less touches, if you will, and less time. And so for you, in the planning of your readers' workshops, those virtual workshops, text selection seems like a critical aspect. And then through that text selection, you're really able to foster that love of literature because you have been so intentional about the authors, the narratives you're choosing, the nonfiction you're choosing, and the way that you're pairing those with curriculum or content. Correct. And I, and I think that, you know, I always turn back to Mem Fox, and, and I think that we forget um, that she's written so much about the power of sharing good books with kids. I read that she said that children need to hear a thousand stories read aloud before they begin to learn to read for themselves. Which means that in one year, if we share three stories with kids every day, that, that would be a thousand stories. Wow. So that's possible in those four or five years before school, she says. And she always says, you know, you should share something that's familiar, something that's a favorite, and something that's new. So I kind of try to filter things through that lens. I'm always looking for something new. I always turn to my old favorites um, and just something that maybe they're familiar with, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it, it's, it's been, it's been interesting. 
So I think, you know, thinking about that framework is is interesting, particularly if we are thinking about if we have access to our classroom libraries or the books that we were able to, you know, mm. still have at home, something familiar, something that's a favorite and something that's new. And so one thing I'm inferring from what you've shared with us so far is that reading aloud is one of your core beliefs and a really common practice within your classroom. When we think about moving to e-learning or a virtual context, I know a lot of teachers feel that time is is much shorter. They don't have as much time as they used to have with their students particularly. So what does reading aloud look like and sound like for you? <sighs> to me, it's something that I... I don't think we can let go of. I know a lot of teachers are recording their read aloud, but for me, it, I, I haven't been because it's, it's almost that time. Like I can look into their eyes um, and see what they're thinking. And, and, and we just, we just have this great, um, you know, we talk a lot about building relationships, which is a little bit harder to do when you're working online. And so, you know, if I can read aloud and I can, um, do those things that that I know are are wise for kids. Um, it kind of uh, Kate D. Camillo again says that it's it's like it ushers us into this this safe place, mm-hmm. and it's it's this place where everybody's involved, the reader and the listener, and you can just put down your defenses and let down your guard. And and this she says this. We humans long not just for story, but for the flow of language. Oh, sorry. We humans long not just for the story, not just for the flow of language, but for the connection that comes when words are read aloud. And that connection provides illumination. And I just, I love that quote. And um, I just think that she and Mem Fox and Jim Trelease and Lester Laminac and... Um, uh, all of the people who have written about the power of read aloud, we can't let that go. Mm-hmm. We can't let that go for second graders, but we also can't let that go for 10th graders. And I, I would challenge those people that are teaching older kids to read aloud. Um, mm-hmm. I read a quote um, from our friend Carol Wilcox on Twitter a few weeks ago, and she said that she chose a book to start her day with that she knew over time would grab the attention of her learners uh, so they would show up. That's the first thing she does. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a powerful read. It fits their, um, their, their need, their persona, their, their life. Um, They see themselves there. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's critical. I, I, I think that there's such power in it. You know, we always talk about reading, and writing, but we forget that listening is one of the language arts as well. Wow. And so we have to give them something that's worth listening to, you know, um, that's, and, and, and that, you know, Catherine Patterson always says that it's, it's not just good enough to teach children to read. She says, we have to give them something worth reading that's going to stretch their imagination, that's going to help them make sense out of their own lives and encourage them to reach out toward people whose lives are quite different from their own. And isn't that what we need right now? Right? So 
for me, it's an important part of my day. I love read aloud. We do it right before we say goodbye. Um, I have kids that are following along. I have parents who sneak in, coaches who sneak in to hear me read aloud. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just think that that's, um, that's important. Wow. So, I mean, just to kind of think on some of the things that you just shared with us, really thinking about the read aloud is an opportunity to build relationships. Mm-hmm. It's actually a safe place for kids to gather and to connect around something, like you said, that could be familiar or favorite or something brand new. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a way to kind of increase engagement, if you will, mm-hmm. or curiosity yeah. by perhaps reading something a little bit provocative that gets some of our adolescent learners into the Zoom room, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, this idea around listening. And, you know, it's, it's this different kind of listening when we're to read aloud. And so when we think about that component of reading aloud for kids and how that makes up one of your core beliefs, I can, I can see that just happening in your practice. What if someone were going to kind of press or, you know, ask some questions about the academic side of reading aloud? Like, why is reading aloud a practice we shouldn't abandon during virtual or e-learning? in terms of reading development, in terms of writing? Like, what are those kind of academic benefits, if you will? I, I think, you know, I think first and foremost, you know, there's that old quote, and I, and I don't know who said it, that that says that children are made readers on the laps of their parents. Mm. But I also think that they're made readers by hearing the quote unquote best reader in the room read. I mean, there's so much out there about, um, you know, phonics instruction and grammar and, and what better way is there to teach kids than reading out loud to them. I mean, even if you're, you know, if you're back in the regular classroom and you're conferring with somebody who's a burgeoning reader and you're sitting side by side them and they're struggling, you could say, now listen to how I would read this. And you're giving them that demonstration, that, that, that purposeful way of, of knowing, um, you know, again, Mem Fox tells us that reading aloud helps kids discover the magic of print. Mm. It helps them make sense of those squiggles on the page. It helps them um, understand language and understand how the world works. Mm-hmm. So th- those three things, I, I, I don't think we can argue about. Um, I love the idea of thinking about the squiggles on the page. Right. You know, books are made up of the same 26 letters. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the other thing. Everything is made up of these 26 letters that are put together in different phonemes, which we don't even talk about, right? (laughs) We we talk about, you know, um, uh, the the phonics aspect, but we don't talk about phonemics. So if we're really going to get into it, we need to talk about that because that is, that's so much bigger because depending on where you live, 
right. those phonemes change, right? <laughs> like if you've ever listened to somebody from Louisiana talk, I've ordered clam chowder in a restaurant in Boston. I didn't even understand what the waitress was saying. I mean, so we have to think clearly about what are we really trying to to do? And, you know, I talked to my kids about this. I said, why is read aloud important? And they just said, you know, it, 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 it helps them imagine new things. It helps them think and learn. It helps them relax. It helps them focus. I mean, ask your kids. I mean, it's, it's an important thing. And I think that sometimes we let it go because it's the thing we do after recess. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's, um, it's this, this gift that we can offer up to, to readers that, um, could never be replaced. I mean, I still remember Mrs. Bishop in in third grade. Her name was Downey. Mrs. Bishop reading the boxcar children to us. And I just, I just loved it. I remember, um, you know, Mrs. Cannon in first grade reading to us about Dick and Jane going to the zoo. And, and then we read it with her and it was the funniest thing I had ever heard. And then I was in high school and I remember um, uh, my math teacher would read out loud to us. I mean, it's just, I just think there's such power in read aloud and it, it, you know, reader readers who hear words and, and hear somebody read well, you know, they want to, they want to emulate that. They want to become that. And especially when we have kiddos who are coming from homes that where they weren't read to. I mean, it's a, it's a huge, huge deal for us. We cannot take it lightly. And I think there's lots of, of work out there that would support that. So I'm feeling like that personal connection, that demonstration, that making sense of the world, understanding the squiggles on the page, all of that in some ways can transcend a screen. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if I can invite you to read a little bit for us today. Oh my goodness. Sure. Yeah. I know that you're surrounded by books. I am. I actually, I'm going to do two. Is that okay? Absolutely. Sure. I'm going to read to adults first and I'm going to read um, a little bit out of Ordinary Hazards, which is Nikki Grimes' um, memoir. If you haven't read it, you need to. It's a memoir written in verse. Um, It's brilliant. And um, I'm just going to read a couple pages out of that first. And then I'm going to read something that I've just recently read with my students, if that's okay. Sounds perfect. This is is out of book one of the book, and it's called The Naming. I read somewhere that names penetrate the core of our being. And I suppose... This is as good a time as any to confess. Confess, My name is not the only lie I've ever lived with. But Nikki is the first invention for which I accept full responsibility. Nickname is the word I plucked it from when I was six. I immediately liked the hard K of it, which sounded firm and looked like a sturdily braced wall. Whether I wrote the block letters or loopy cursive script, I fiddled with the spelling for years, eventually dropping C and adding another K, as if it were a second layer of brick. Toughness is what I was after, 
although I couldn't have articulated as much. My real name huddled behind that wall, along with its memories. The girl with the name wasn't worth a lot, at least not <clears throat> so you'd notice, which I suppose was why I chose to keep my distance. I mean, if she was worth the space she occupied, why'd someone lock her away? Why'd she take unearned beatings from strangers? Why'd her own mother... Never mind. For now, let's just say the girl with that old name suffered things I want to forget. Besides, few people managed to pronounce my birth name as intended, and life is too short to spend correcting everyone I meet. I won't be revealing that name now, but thanks kindly for your interest. Just call me Nikki. Wow. <laughs> what does that do for you, Michelle? When you're read aloud to, what do you want to do now? I want to keep reading. Right. And I want to hear more. Right. And I am full of questions and curiosity. Schema. I mean, it's just, it's a beautifully yeah. written book. Oh my gosh. If you haven't read it. Ooh. I mean, I'm still in, in the middle of it, but um, really, really powerful. But what I wanted to read out loud to you next was uh, I, I read um, Barbara O'Connor is a good friend of mine and she's one of my favorite children's authors. Um, I met her at, NCTE in Boston several years ago. We went out to lunch and became fast friends. We talk on the phone. We text each other. We play words with friends. <laughs> and um, my favorite book of hers um, is called Greetings from Nowhere. I could read that book a thousand times. But I read this book to my second graders. This book is called The Fantastic Secret of Owen Jester. And it's about these children who, um, they discover something that has fallen off the train at night. And what it is, is a two-person submarine. And they spend the entire book trying to get this submarine into the water. That's one of the stories. Um, when Owen Jester is sleeping, um, he heard the train roar by and he heard the crack of wood and the tumble, tumble, tumble sound. And it, it, he just could not figure out what it was. So that's one of the storylines that's floating through the book. And you get to know Travis and Stumpy and you get to know Viola and you get to know Owen and, um, you know, you get to know these wonderful, wonderful characters. Um, and um, Erlene, the housekeeper, she's hilarious. And then um, you get to know Thule. And Thule Graham is a bullfrog that he has spent the entire, um, he spent a lot of time trying to catch this bullfrog, the most beautiful bullfrog in Carter, Georgia. And um, Viola keeps telling him that Thule is not happy and that he's dying. And so they build a cage for him in the pond and he's still not happy. And so he starts listening to Viola almost as if she's his conscience and she's saying these things and he starts to believe it. 
and so <clears throat> I'm going to read you just where he makes this decision to let Thule go. And this is one of those, those times when, um, when you're reading out loud and you just have to do it with quiet um, voice and there's just this slow finish at, at, at the end of this chapter. And this is how it goes. I can't wait. <laughs> As the sun sank lower in the sky, the pond seemed to be settling in for the night. The moss-covered logs along the edges were empty. No turtles basking in the summer sun. The water was still and smooth as glass. No water bugs leaving ripples across the surface. Not a single pair of yellow bullfrog eyes peering out from the floating leaves that gathered in clumps in the shadows. The low hum of crickets was starting, interrupted from time to time by the buzz of a mosquito. Owen lifted the lid of the perfect cage. He reached in and scooped Thule out. Then he sat on the end of the dock and had a little chat with the big green bullfrog. He told him about how much fun it had been to come down to the pond every day and look for him. He praised him for his ability to avoid being captured for so long. The way he had darted out of the net quick as lightning, the way he had shot out from under the colander, and then he apologized for a few things. I'm sorry I made you stay in that cage so long, Owen said to Thule. Viola said you never wanted to be Thule, Graham, and that you just want to be a frog, Owen said. So, well, if that's true, and um, I guess maybe it is, because Viola's almost always right, even though she's so dumb. Well, anyway, I'm sorry about that. The frog moved a little in Owen's lap. And, um... Owen stroked Thule's back. I'm sorry if I made you sad. Owen leaned over the edge of the dock and lowered Thule into the water. Goodbye, Thule, he said. Then he let go of the most beautiful bullfrog in Carter, Georgia, and watched as it pushed its long, froggy legs and disappeared into the pond without so much as a splash. I love that. Mm -hmm. I just, I just closed the book right at that point. That's not the end of the book, but I usually just close it. And I, and I teach kids that before you jump in with a comment or a statement or a response, just, just let the words float. So it's a beautiful book. Mm. Oh, thank you for this conversation and the reminder of no matter what's happening in our world or in our classrooms right now, it feels like we need read aloud more than ever before. We do. We and do. We need those opportunities to pause and to be moved and to hear something beautiful. Yeah. I, I, I read, I, I, I just, I want to leave you with this, this, um, this quote from Jim to release in the read aloud handbook, because I found it, and it just struck me knowing what we were going to talk about today, Michelle. And I think it's so apropos. And he wrote this reading is the ultimate weapon. Oh, sorry. Let me start again. Reading is the ultimate weapon, destroying ignorance, poverty, and despair before they can destroy us. 
A nation that, that doesn't read much doesn't know much. And a nation that doesn't know much is more likely to make poor choices in the home, the marketplace, the jury box, and the voting booth. And those decisions ultimately affect an entire nation, both the literate and the illiterate. Thank you for joining us today. We hope our time together provided inspiration and information. In closing, PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Phenomenal Teaching by Wendy Wardhofer. We now provide customized virtual and on-site professional development, coaching, institutes, and digital courses. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org.